of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode 71 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is the bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here who, like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, is here to take another chip out of the prison walls of our two-party duopoly. I thought long and hard about that one. I hope you liked it. Now, you all know the goal of YDHTY is to help get more parties on the ballot. And a lot of that depends on the rules that parties use to get on the ballot. And as we learned in episode 69 with Barbara Dahlgren of the Wisconsin Green Party, the two major parties will use things like minor clerical errors to keep candidates they don't like off. So with that in mind, this week's guest is one of the foremost experts in ballot access law in the United States, Richard Winger publisher of Ballot Access News, found at ballot-access.org, has been working on this issue since 1965, and it was an honor to sit down with him and discuss the quirks of getting on the ballot in various states. Now, Richard suggests some interesting reforms to help make ballot access more equitable across states and open the door for more parties to compete. And he touches on one change not related to ballot access I found really interesting. Lastly, Richard was the inaugural guest on YDHTY Live, which streamed on YouTube and Facebook over the weekend. If you're interested in seeing the full unedited version along with other episodes, check it out on You Don't Have to Yell's YouTube or Facebook page. I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts. Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell's very first webcast episode. Uh, I'm going to ask for apologies as I try and tinker with the technology, uh, as this is our very first one. Um, today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Richard Winger of Ballot Access News. Uh, he is one of the foremost experts in ballot access law and ballot access across the states. And you can get information on his site at ballot-access.org. Org and welcome, Richard, and and thank you for being so gracious as to be my guinea pig here. Well, I didn't know I was going to be a guinea pig. Maybe <laughs> I have to rethink this. <laughs> I know, right? Right? Maybe I should have warned you. I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> good, good. Now, first off, before we even get into kind of the meat of of what you're doing and and some of the issues around ballot access, could you just tell everyone how long is have you been focused on the issue of ballot access in America? In 1965, when I was in college, I got so interested in ballot access, and I lived in California then, as I still do, and I, I had recently realized that my own state had about the worst ballot access law in the whole country, so I, I wrote a bill and got it introduced in the legislature to improve things, but it didn't pass, but uh, that was, that was a long time ago, and I've been fascinated by it ever since. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I ask you to say that, too, is because I think a lot of people, especially, uh, you know, younger people kind of just getting into uh, political activism, 
get a little discouraged with how slow democracy moves at times. And I, I think it's, I, 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 I always admire the folks who I talk to who've been at this for, for decades, you know, and, and for the folks who are impatient, for the folks who don't feel the system moves as quickly as it should, I, I'd ask you to just like, you know, think about how long it takes for four people to agree on pizza toppings and multiply that by about 300 million and you've got yourself American democracy right there. So um, now, but you started ballot access news a little bit later, correct? 1985. Okay. And what was the thing that prompted you to start that? And, and what was your main, your main focus, your main goal? Congressman John Conyers of Michigan had introduced a bill to outlaw restrictive ballot access laws in federal elections. Mm -hmm. Congress has the right to do that because it says in Article 1, <clears throat> even though the states write the election laws, Congress can override them if it's for federal elections. Mm -hmm. So he, he introduced this bill, which I thought was a great bill, and I knew a lot of people in minor parties, and I was afraid they didn't know about the bill. So I started the newsletter just to focus uh, attention on this bill and who's working for it and what progress are they making and which congressmen, congresspeople are co-sponsoring it. So the very first year, the newsletter was called the HR 2320 News. Mm -hmm. Probably most of your listeners know uh, ordinary bills in US House of Representatives always have the HR and a, and a number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and now, you know, bef one of the things that, that I've found as I've talked to a lot of folks in, uh, especially in the minor parties, you know, that the, what we call the third parties, although there are more than, than three of them, um, is that ballot access laws very often sort of create a protective moat that really only allow the two major parties to get on the ballot in many instances. Um, I definitely want to get into that, but before we go there, you know, to kind of flip that on its head, I'd like to ask, like, what are some of the legitimate reasons we have ballot access laws right now? To keep ballots from having so many names that uh, it's very hard on the voter. The, the obvious example of a ballot that had too many names was California's recall election <laughs> for governor in 2003. Yeah the top of the ballot said, do you want to recall Governor Gray Davis? The second half said, okay, it, whether you do or not, just in case he gets recalled, here's a list of people running for governor to replace him. And it was only 65 signatures and 135 people filed. It, it was so funny that Doonesbury, maybe, I hope a lot of your listeners remember Doonesbury. Oh yeah. He, he had a lot of uh, strips about it. For instance, one of his main characters was sitting on an airplane and he was flying out to California to file. And, and the, there's a stranger sitting next to him in the airplane and, and the stranger was doing the exactly same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Doonesbury's a, 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 a political comic strip that was around for, for decades. Um, yeah. I, so I was living in San Francisco during hmm. the recall. So I just no moved out there. Yeah, I was living in um, in Richmond. So hmm. uh, I don't know where, you know, you're, you're in the general area. Um, 
but so I, I landed there and now Massachusetts politics, which is where I'm from, you know, Massachusetts, very blue state, very liberal state, but culturally very conservative, you hmm. know, when you, especially when you compare it to California. And I remember seeing the list and being like, this is absolutely nuts. And then of course they elected Arnold Schwarzenegger, which in some respects you, you, you know, Hollywood itself couldn't write. So, um, but I think Gary Coleman from different strokes was on, was running. I can't remember. I mean, it was a whole, it was, it was basically a lot of people doing publicity, publicity stunts, right? That's right. And furthermore, there was a very wealthy man who supported Gray Davis and he was furious about the recall and he tried to sabotage the recall by saying he put up a web page and saying hey if you run for governor of california i'll pay your filing fee because besides the 65 signatures you you needed a, a filing fee so oh. that that made it worse of course really so he was actually was he just trying to undermine any of the let's call them legitimate candidates or the candidates with um the candidates with some sort of, uh, you know, reasonable chance of winning, or was it just to inject chaos into the process? That's it. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. So what is the, you know, kind of expanding into the rest of the country, like what does the landscape of ballot access laws look like? Unfortunately, ballot access laws have gotten worse since they were started in the late 19th century. You know, generally in this country, we've improved ballot, voting rights in so many areas, mm -hmm. but the right to vote for the candidate of your choice is a voting right that has shrunk since the 18, well, even the 17 and 1800s. Mm -hmm. First of all, before 1890, there was no such thing as a government printed ballot voters could take any old piece of paper they wanted and make their own ballot, but most voters didn't want to go to that bother. So they'd pick a ballot pre-printed by their favorite party and they'd cast that. Okay. So, so the government had zero control over who could run for office. There was no such thing as a filing fee or a declaration of candidacy. People just ran and it worked fine. And that's why in the 19th century, we had such fluidity Three times, one of the major parties died off and was replaced by a new one, which is the way it should be. Yeah. That's, that's the way it is in democracies around the rest of the world. We had the Federalist Party died off, and in mm -hmm. its place arose the National Republican Party, which is not very well known, but that's the party that ran John Quincy Adams for vice for yep. re-election and then Henry Clay in 1832. It mm -hmm. died off. The Whig Party arose. It was pretty successful, mm -hmm. but uh, about after a quarter of a century, it was dying. And the Republican Party rose up. And we could do that because the system was totally free. But of course, we've, got, we've been stuck with the same two major parties now since 1850s. Yeah. And just to, just to kind of go back to a point here. So the original ballot was just like, I'd, I'd write a bunch of names on a piece of paper, go to whatever my polling place was and drop it off. Is that, is that how it worked? That was legal. It was a lot of work though. Yeah. So I mean, um, if, if a voter wanted to vote for mostly one party, but he, and I say he, cause it was he back then. Mm -hmm. If he didn't like all the names on that party printed ballot, he was perfectly free to scratch off the names of people he didn't like and, uh -huh. and write in, somebody else. 
And that's why when we did finally start putting in government printed ballots, almost always the legislature would provide a blank space on there because they wanted to preserve the ancient right that you could mm-hmm. write in somebody if you didn't like the names on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when did that all start? When did, I guess, when did the states all start to solidify around a printed ballot with relatively rigid regulations around who could get on and who couldn't? There was a lot of bad changes at the end of World War One. There was a huge panic at the end of World War One called the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. Woodrow Wilson's attorney general was death on radicals and we even put Eugene Debs in prison mm-hmm. for um, really for speaking against World War One, and uh, so a fair number of states made it really really difficult to get on the ballot around 1920. Not very many states though. Mm-hmm. It also got much worse in the late 30s. Well, actually, the early 30s because. It's hard to imagine, but in 1930 and 31, the Communist Party appeared to be gaining a lot of influence Mm -hmm. and members. Uh, 1931, especially, the Communist Party was very militant. You know, people really thought about the possibility of a violent revolution. So there was a lot of motivation in some states to squish the Communist Party and keep it off the ballot. So, yeah. The worst period, though, wasn't those two. The absolute worst period was 1969 and 1971. Those Mm -hmm. were the absolute two worst years. And I think it's because George Wallace had shocked the country by getting 13.5% of the vote for president Mm -hmm. in 1968. And George Wallace greatly improved himself as he got older. But... In 1968, he was still a very evil person. Mm-hmm. And he was pro segregation. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. and so it seemed like a good government thing for legislatures in 1969 and 1971 to stiffen the ballot access laws to prevent demagogues like him. But of course, it didn't just hurt him, it hurt mm-hmm. all kinds of people. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that you're saying all this because just this morning, actually, I was watching a documentary on on the Nazi Party's rise to power and mm-hmm. kind of how they rode this this let's call it populist wave uh, in Europe that was brought on by World War One, but then of course in Germany by the economic ruin of uh, the Treaty of Versailles and um and and that furthered kind of the radicalization of german politics and this is totally going to contradict everything that this podcast stands for but i wonder do you think in some way that structure that crowded those minor party outs might have saved the us from a similar fate or 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 kept the radicals at bay or or not no the united yeah. states just didn't have the same socioeconomic conditions that Germany had. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, that's, that's just, just thinking aloud again. Um, So, so it sounds to me then like really, you know, really ballot access was in, was designed or has been designed to prevent, uh, you know, prevent any, 
any third party from arising or prevent any party from posing a threat to the two major parties. Like that's the specific purpose, it, it seems like, correct? Yes, although when we go to court, the government briefs will never say that. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, yeah. Really, they, they can't come up with any reason to put on paper except avoiding crowded ballots. That's why I'm pleased to say that after decades and decades of being immersed in this subject, I was able to hit upon a theory, uh -huh. which is shown by data. I mean, I didn't make it up. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> if a state requires more than 5,000 signatures, it will never have a crowded ballot. If one defines crowded ballot as more than eight candidates, mm -hmm. um, Justice Harlan in 1968 wrote that he didn't think having eight candidates for a single office was a problem. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm glad he said that because, in other words, it's not just my opinion. Somebody important said that. Yep. And I yep. discovered go, by going through all the data all the way back to the government printed ballot beginning that if a state requires more than 5,000 signatures, it will never ever have more than eight candidates. It's, it's not a logical rule. It's an mm -hmm. empirical rule. It just turns out that way. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And, and so really it seems then like, like what you're saying is, is maybe the ideal reform should be a 5,000 signature uh, a 5,000 signature threshold for candidacy. And other than that, just kind of scrap the other regulations. Is that, is that what I'm hearing or, or am I? That's right. That's okay. Right. Okay. So, you know, kind of taking that into context then, you know, which States, when you look at the States and obviously they all have vastly different access laws, which ones are, are, you know, doing the best, which ones are, would you say are the worst right now? By far, the worst ballot access law in the nation is Georgia's law mm -hmm. on how independent and third-party candidates get in the ballot for U.S. House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. It was written in 1943, and in all those 77 years, not once has a third party been able to get on the ballot in a regularly scheduled Georgia election for U.S. House. I have to add the words regularly scheduled because in Georgia special elections, there is no petition. It's yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the, the, it's five, the law says 5% of all the registered voters in the district have to sign the petition, which in now most districts in Georgia is around 20,000. Uh -huh. And you might think, well, surely somebody could do it because many, many people have tried. But the real problem for district petitions is, especially nowadays, the boundaries of the districts are so wiggly so con convoluted because of gerrymandering, mm -hmm. the best petitioners in the world try as they might. They go out in the street with maps, perhaps. They try to figure out, well, does this voter live in the district? But invariably, half of these petition signatures are no good because people signed in good faith, mm -hmm. but they don't live in the right district. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big, one of the things I've heard a lot of too, in terms of the tactics the major parties use to disqualify third party candidates is they will just go after the signatures effectively and invalidate enough of them or deem enough of them invalid in court to then remove those folks from the ballot, right? Yeah, but that's not 
true in the typical state. That's oh, okay. true in a significant minority of states. States get in habits. Mm -hmm. And these, these habits last lifetime of individuals. It's a, it, I guess it's part of the culture. Yeah. In New York and Illinois and Pennsylvania, that's the thing to do. Go after little bitty problems with particular mm -hmm. signatures. But mm -hmm. in most states, that's not what happens. In most states, professional employees of the election administration office check the signatures. They're, they're good people. They're doing a good job. And um, it's not an issue in most states. Yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's interesting as you're talking, I was, I was thinking, and this is something we talked about before uh, this recording was the recent removal of Howie Hawkins, the Green Party candidate from the, uh, the ballot in Wisconsin, which was, which was something that we talked about in an episode um, a couple weeks back with the co-chair or the former co-chair of the Wisconsin Green Party. I'm glad you covered that already. Yeah. Yeah. And could you, you know, in my understanding with that one, because I'd really love to kind of dissect this specific issue to give folks an idea as to, you know, the lengths uh, the two major parties will go to, to, to remove folks from the ballot. You know, in this case, what happened is the Green Party candidate, uh, Howie Hawkins, um, had gotten on the ballot in Wisconsin. And then uh, the vice presidential candidate in the middle, somewhere after getting uh, her name on the ballot and uh, when a suit was filed, had moved, moved from one end of, in the same town in Georgia, moved from one end of the town to the other end of town. And because of that one little change, they were just thrown off the ballot. Um, go, go on, you're going to say something there? And that completely contradicted Wisconsin case law and, and precedent. Wisconsin had never done anything like that before. Wisconsin had always been one of the most tolerant states in the country. Wisconsin had never kept anybody of any importance off its ballot for president. In fact, they were so relaxed. In 2004, the Democrats challenged Ralph Nader's petition in Wisconsin mm -hmm. because the law said you're supposed to have a candidate for presidential elector from each U.S. House district. Well, something went wrong and he had two people from one district and zero people from another. Yeah. But the state Supreme Court unanimously said that law is just directory, <laughs> meaning it wasn't fatal. And they put him back on the ballot. Furthermore, in 1980, John Anderson was an independent presidential candidate. And he, he had a problem. I, I, I think many of your listeners remember John Anderson. I hope they do. Yeah. He was a very distinguished and wonderful congressman from Illinois. He was a liberal Republican. And when he saw that Ronald Reagan was going to get the nomination, he thought folks should have somebody to vote for who hmm. represented the center. So he couldn't find anybody important to run as his vice presidential running mate at first. But on August 27th, he found somebody. He found the former governor of Wisconsin, Patrick Lucy, to be his vice presidential running mate. Unfortunately, in Wisconsin and most states, he had already circulated his petitions with a stand-in, Milton Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's older brother. He was 90 at the time. He was just, he was just a, a placeholder. Yeah. And the Wisconsin Election Commission let Anderson 
replace Milton Eisenhower with Patrick Lucy, even though that was not in the law. They were yeah. just being reasonable. Yeah. So here we, we had this tradition of Wisconsin being a really good state. And what happened in 2016, I'm sorry, 2020, yeah. completely went against that tradition. Yeah, it also seems too, like, at least in all the big, you know, notable cases where a candidate's been removed from the ballot, it seems like the Democrats are the ones consistently using ballot access laws um, to get other candidates off off the ballot. Is that something, has that been consistent throughout history or are, are, have there been periods in time where the Republicans were um, also to blame? It's a paradox. Generally speaking, the Democratic Party holds itself out accurately as being uh -huh. more concerned with voting rights than the Republican Party. Yeah. In fact, in 1984, the Democratic National Convention even passed a resolution saying no duty of the Democratic Party is more important than protecting voting rights. Mm -hmm. And yet, paradoxically, the Democratic Party has quite a long history of trying to keep third party candidates off the ballot. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans don't. Uh, the, the Democrats first did it in 1936 to former, con no, current Congressman William Lemke. Mm -hmm. He was a third party candidate. Yeah, and the Democrats tried to keep at um, former Vice President Henry Wallace off the ballot in 1948, mm -hmm. and they tried to keep Vincent Hallinan off in 1952, and they tried to keep John Anderson off the ballot in 1980. It was a paradox because Anderson yeah. was a Republican, but they just had a feeling that John Anderson was taking away more votes from Jimmy Carter, yeah, than Ronald Reagan. But yeah. they, they really, really did it to Ralph Nader in 2004. Uh, they must have filed lawsuits to get him off the ballot in 20-some states. Well, yeah. And typically, too, you know, for, for the folks who maybe don't remember, you know, Ralph Nader was very much blamed as the spoiler for 2000, where, you know, Gore lost, won the popular vote, lost the popular vote, in Florida by hundreds and as a result uh, lost the electoral vote. Um, and Nader was was portrayed as a spoiler much as Jill Stein was portrayed as a spoiler in, uh, in 2016. Um, it's, it, it's interesting though that you say that because yeah, it, it doesn't it, it does seem very off-brand for the Democrats to be so aggressive. Uh, against, um, you know, potential opposition. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Richard Winger. I hope you're enjoying this episode and as always wanted to take a short break to remind you of why we're here. Now, our system is broken because our two major parties have more incentives to game elections via gerrymandering and ballot access laws than they do to actually do the job of representing their constituencies. And this is a direct result of our first-past-the-post voting system, where the person who wins one more vote than second place wins everything. And if we change this via reforms such as proportional representation and ranked choice voting, we change the incentives of elected officials from one where they are incentivized to serve the donor class to one where they're incentivized to serve the voters. 
And the goal of YDHTY is to help do this by bringing multi-party democracy to the United States by 2029 and opening up our political system to real competition. And here's how you can help. First and foremost, there are numerous national and local organizations focused on electoral reform. I've had some of them on the show, and with some creative Googling, you can find them. They always need help, so don't hesitate to find them, reach out, and get involved. Secondly, engage with me on social media via the hashtag YDHTY. I'd love to hear from you, share ideas, and see how we can collaborate. Lastly, you can drop me a line on YDHTY.com if you're feeling shy about the whole social media thing with any questions or to let me know of any other people or organizations I should have on the show to help promote. Now, 2029 may seem like a long ways away, but these reforms won't come quick and they won't come easy. So I hope you'll join me in the fight. Now back to the episode. One question I have for you, and this goes back a ways, but you know, the last, the last uh, third party to ever have a reasonable showing was, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party when he broke away the Progressive Party when he broke away from the Republicans. And at that point in time, was there was there any effort to curtail, or was there any effort on the on maybe the Republican side to make it harder for third parties to emerge, or no? No, not at all. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt did fail to get on the ballot in one state. Uh-huh. That was Oklahoma. But okay. um, it, it wasn't the Republicans' fault. Oklahoma had a Democratic legislature. And anyway, it's the legislature had rather thoughtlessly passed a law that said a new party had to be had to have its own primary. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it had to get on the ballot in time mm-hmm. for the primary. Mm-hmm. And Teddy Roosevelt didn't start his party till August 1912. And mm-hmm. so he missed the deadline of Oklahoma. Got it. Got it. And so I guess like, you know, you've obviously been studying this a while. Um, you've seen the landscape change over the years. You know, what have been from from sort of an electoral standpoint or from a functional standpoint, you know, what have been some of the negative effects of the states with more restrictive ballot access requirements? Well, simply that a certain percentage of the voters in those states lost their ability to re- to vote freely for the candidate of their choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's sad, but you cannot point to any big policy decision that was caused by that. Mm-hmm. At least I can't right now. I've never really thought about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, you know, when I and and I've spoken with a lot of folks. I've spoken with a lot of third party candidates, a lot of uh, electoral reform uh, advocates um, on 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 just the the general subject of of the 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 effect of the two party system in America, and it. It it almost seems like in a lot of ways it's it's kind of death by a thousand cuts where it's it isn't necessarily solely gerrymandering or it isn't necessarily solely a ballot access law that creates bad government but what it is it's kind of the cumulative effect of all those things together and I think it's just with ballot access it's just another way to insulate um, the two major parties from popular opinion and insulate them from the will of the voter. 
Right. Um, there's something worse than ballot access restrictions as far as keeping the old two parties entrenched. That's mm -hmm. the policy of the commission and presidential debates to keep everybody out of the general election presidential debates. Mm -hmm. That does more harm than the ballot access laws. Do you mind talking about that one? Because I know I invited you on here to talk about ballot access. And I know I also made you my video guinea pig, so I'm feeling a little guilty here. But would you mind? Could you could you expound on that a little bit? Because I'd love to hear about it. That's something I've I've heard a lot about. Haven't had a chance to dive into in any episode thus far. Well, let me just mention Great Britain has an election system like ours. Mm -hmm. You know, that no proportional representation. Whoever gets the most votes get elected. Yep. Although at least Great Britain and Canada have very fair and easy ballot access. But besides that, those two countries have had inclusive debates when they've had national parliamentary elections. I've seen uh, one Canadian debate with the heads of, I don't wanna get this wrong. Okay, I think in Canada, the most heads of parties they ever had in the debate was five and it was Britain where I saw a debate with seven. And uh, that was so refreshing. Oh, and in France, they have presidential elections somewhat like ours. Mm -hmm. And everybody who's on the ballot gets in the debate. In fact, France, <laughs> they really go overboard on unfairness of publicity. In France, all broadcast media must, by law, whether they're government-owned or private, must mm -hmm. give every candidate on the ballot equal time. <laughs> and they stick to it to the second. Oh, anyway, uh, could I just I, I just want to okay. make it I just want to make a quick note to okay. any folks in mainstream media covering this, which is Donald Trump and his Twitter feed for all intents and purposes eventually are going to go away. And you won't have that mechanism to be driving, to be just gluing people's eyeballs to the news. So one idea is maybe promote the idea of getting every candidate from every party equal airtime because you are just going to be able to cover the election cycle nonstop. Sorry, Richard, I didn't mean to I, I didn't mean to derail you there. I just wanted to make that throw out that uh, throw out throw that out to anyone who might be uh, might be watching. Good. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Go, go, go ahead. I knocked. I we were taught you. You'd mentioned France, and then you were going on to kind of the, you know, what you saw in the debates in the well, UK and in Canada. In this country, the Commission and Presidential Debates was founded by leading leaders of the Republican and Democratic parties, and they first they said we're not going to allow anybody into the general election debates unless they have a realistic chance of winning, and they got a lot of criticism for that. So finally, they said, oh, all right, we'll ease up. Ha ha. <laughs> you can get in if you're at 15 percent in the polls, but we'll decide which polls count. And, and it has to be in mid-September or later. Well, if you look back in history, at least since we've had polls, mm -hmm. Uh, the only person who, who would have met that criteria was George Wallace. He was, he was above 20% in September 1968. Mm -hmm. But uh, Ross Perot in 1992, that was his really strong year. He had left the race in July. Mm -hmm. 
And then he got back in on October 1st mm -hmm. and he was at 7% in the polls. So he wouldn't have made it. Yep. But both Clinton and President Bush wanted Perot in the debate because each one of them thought it would be good for him. Uh. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, as we're, as we're going live, Nick Hensley, who's the current chair of the Reform Party, it just commented and he said, if you have Richard Winger, this is a good conversation. So you've got a fan oh. with the reforms, but with the reformers, but, uh, but go on. Sorry. Well, anyway, uh, so even though the commission and presidential debates had this 15% rule, mm -hmm. they, they let the Republican and Democratic presidential candidates tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. So they let Perot into the debates in 92. Yeah. That's the only time in this country history where the, a third party or independent candidate has been on the in the debates with both major parties. Yeah. And boy, you see the results. He got 19%. Yes. He was, he was quite good in the debates. Yeah. And, uh, it's just impossible to predict how how other debates would have gone if they'd been inclusive. But there's a very simple rule if the if the commission presidential debate simply said we'll invite anybody who's on the ballot in enough states to theoretically win the election, that would work fine. There's mm -hmm. not a single presidential election in history where that would have meant more than seven candidates, mm -hmm. and most of the time it would have been four. Like in 2016, it would have just been Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. Yeah, yeah. And same in 2020. The same. Four parties would have been there, Libertarian and Green, Democrat, Republican. So that's not too many. We know no. it's not too many because of the primary season. Look at those debates. Oh, my goodness. I <laughs> too mean, much. Absolutely. Like, look, if there is an argument for restrictive ballot access, um, look at the last Democratic primary or the Republican primary before that. We don't need 20. Like anyone who's arguing against a crowded ballot from a major party should really take a look in the mirror for that reason specifically. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you bring that up because you know, one of the things that's always puzzled me and one of the big things I, I rail against on this, on this podcast is um, the first pass the post system. You know, the fact that all I need to do is win one more vote than second place to win office. And just to give you a kind of uh, an idea as to what that looks like in practice, you know, Massachusetts, uh, we recently had our uh, Democratic primary, which is effectively the general election for Congress because, you know, it's it's an extremely loose state. Uh, I think it was District 4. The the person who was representing District 4 won with 24% of the vote as, as a result of uh, the as a result of uh, a four person primary. And um, but but it's interesting because, you know, I've. I've often made that the one singular focus of, or the one singular enemy of multi-party democracy in the U.S. or the biggest one. But it's interesting because you know, uh, for Canada, first past the post system, the uh, uh, U.K. first past the post system, they still have multiple parties, and it seems to be. And I'd, I'd love your your thoughts on this. It seems to be the fact that the, the main difference there is that the media coverage for. Uh, minor parties is just more substantial in Canada and the UK. And so as a result, they can garner votes, whereas here they're just shut out of the conversation altogether. Right. Uh, the U.S. said first past the post 
in the 19th century, but mm -hmm. we still had very strong third parties. Mm -hmm. In the 1850s, we really had a four-party system. Mm -hmm. Briefly, we had four very strong parties, Democratic, Republican, which is brand new. Whig was still mm -hmm. around. And then there was a party called the American Party, and its nickname was the Know Nothing Party. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1854, uh, no party got a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. And the Democrats didn't want a Whig and the, or an American. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, the Democrats yeah. and Republicans couldn't agree, so they elected a, a, an American Party Speaker of the House. Okay. They, they were the third biggest party. That was pretty unusual to have a speaker who was from the third biggest party. Yeah, this also, is, oh, go on, sorry. No, I, I was just going to clarify. So this is 1854, you, met, you said? Right. That was a fascinating it, election. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, and I'm sorry. Go, go on. I cut you off there. And in the 1910s, we had a multi-party system, you could say. Five parties had members in Congress. Uh-huh. Uh, Democratic, Republican, progressive, nicknamed Bull Moose. Mm-hmm. And, and with just one or two each, the Prohibition Party and the Socialist Party. And uh, so that's, as you say, that was before television, of course. Yep. And so uh, it was kind of live and let live. Any party got as much publicity as it was capable of getting. But Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I mean, I could go down, I could go down this road forever because, you know, a lot of the... Uh, you know, a couple of the guests that I've I've spoken to as well have talked about media access being a big a big barrier, and the fact that like if you look at when the real consolidation around two major parties began, um, it really starts to come as mass media becomes more uh, essential to campaigning um, to to an extent with radio, but once television hits, um, media access becomes paramount to uh, getting your getting your name out there. Um, so. As far as, you know, if, if, if I'm, you know, watching this and I want to make sure that my state is doing what it should be doing to ensure diversity on the ballot and not shut certain parties out, you know, what do you feel are kind of like the standard reforms I should be looking for? Well, you're in Massachusetts, right? I am. Yeah. <laughs> It just bothers me terribly that people in Massachusetts don't seem to pay any attention to the fact that their state is by far provides voters with the fewest choices on the general election ballot. Oh, because because mm -hmm. one fourth of all Massachusetts U.S. House elections in the past 50 years have only had one candidate on the ballot. Mm hmm. And that is so weird in the, in the other five New England states, in all history, there's only been two races in any other New England state that had only one person on the ballot for U.S. House. And in a way, this is about the Republican Party, not third parties, because Massachusetts makes it far too difficult for candidates, especially for U.S. House, to get on the primary ballot. And so... You'll see district after district where no Republican gets in the ballot and nobody else does either. And I, I can't understand why Massachusetts 
voters don't notice this. It's even worse for the legislature. Mm-hmm. Where typically, 75% of the races only have one candidate on the ballot. I, I, I'm In a way, I'm getting away from the, the main point of this show here. <laughs> it's trust me. It's like listen. If you want to, okay. if you want somebody to complain about Massachusetts, you, you know you've got you've got a, you've got somebody right here. I have never. I've lived in the same district, or I've voted in the same district my my entire life because I've never officially you know changed my registration for, um, you know for for another uh, another district. Um, I have always only had one name on the ballot for representative. Mm. It was mm. Joe Moakley and it was Stephen Lynch after that. And I like I like both of them, but mm-hmm. I also don't necessarily know if that's good for good for democracy. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned though is you talked about the and before I move on to my next question, actually, I will say, just putting this out there to anyone from Massachusetts who might be listening, who's Republican, right? Your party is the JV squad and they need to get it in gear because they constantly shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to getting folks on the ballot. Neither here nor there, Richard. I would just love a little competition here and I would love for the Republicans in this state to maybe try and do something to advance their cause. I'll stop there. Um, Now, getting back though, this is something interesting you said because you talked about the the primary po- the, the primary process and the ballot access requirements for primaries. So is that like an equal obstacle or is that maybe even a bigger obstacle than, um, you know, getting on the general? Generally in, in this country, it's pretty easy for people to get themselves on a primary ballot. Mm-hmm. Of course, if the third party isn't on the ballot, it doesn't get a primary. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a problem, but but there's a handful of states that make it way too hard for people to get on a primary ballot. And Massachusetts is number one, and Maine is the same way, and now Arizona is that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a it's a subsidiary problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm also going to say two states have what I call and, and what the press calls top two systems. That's Washington and California, mm-hmm. and that's been deadly for third parties mm-hmm. in in those states, there are no more party nominees, except for president. Yeah, everybody just runs in the primary, and the top two people are the only people that get to appear in the November ballot. Mm-hmm. And in California, they don't even allow write-ins in the in the general election ballot for those offices anymore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some some election reformers think that's wonderful, but it's it even disenfranchises the majority. In 2012, in the 31st U.S. House District in California, which is San Bernardino, mm-hmm. which is a very Democratic district, it's a majority-minority district, mm-hmm. but because of the way the top two system works, four Democrats ran in the primary for U.S. House mm-hmm. and only two Republicans. And because the Democratic vote was split up, the two Republicans came in first and second, and they were the only names on the November ballot. So here, here's this district that only voted 41% for Mitt Romney and only voted 41% for the Republican for U.S. Senate, clearly a, a district that supports Democrats, but there was no Democrat on the ballot. So as a result, 25% of the voters who voted just left it blank. This is disenfranchisement. Yeah. The majority party. So I, if anybody out there thinks 
the top two system is a good idea, I, I urge you to think about how it works in practice. Mm -hmm. In Washington and California, in every single race in which the Democrat and a Republican party got in the primary ballot, there has never been a third party candidate who was able to get on the November ballot. Hmm. Hmm. So, and I kind of took you off topic, I apologize. But so like, if there's, what would you say would be like a gold standard for ballot access? Like if you were to just wave a magic wand and have a federal law that makes it uniform across all states, what would that look like? I think Canada is just about perfect. Okay. Canada requires 100 signatures to vote, to get on the ballot for um, House of Commons, mm -hmm. plus a filing fee of $1,000. Mm -hmm. And um, I could pick out a few states. Mm -hmm. There are some really easy states, too. Not That's Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in Mississippi, this law was written in 1890, and it's mm -hmm. never changed. If a party is organized, it's on the ballot. That means if the group sends in a list of party officers, that's all they need to do. And Mississippi accepts them as a qualified party. Now, I, would, I, I don't want to advocate this in general. It's too yeah. easy. Yeah. Although in, a, in a small population state like Mississippi, it's, it's worked fine. They don't have a crowded ballot in Mississippi. Yeah. It, Do you it's really oh, funny. Sorry. It's funny how, how compare Mississippi to Alabama. They're right next door to each other. In Alabama, you can't get a new party on the ballot unless you turn in a petition of over 50,000 signatures. And then once you get it on there, you can't stay on unless you get 20% of the vote. So as a result, Alabama hasn't had a third party on the statewide ballot since 2002. And here, here's Mississippi right next door. In some ways, the two states are similar. And Mississippi is as easy as can be, and they have no problem. I, it's very funny how the traditions in states are so different. Yeah, Why should Mississippi be okay with that? And boy, it, we've had bill after bill after bill after bill in Alabama, and they they never pass. It's like Alabama legislators are scared to death of third parties. Yeah. Is there any, like, is there, you know, when you've looked at the history, is there some logic, like, so this happened in Alabama, and so they changed the ballot access laws to keep folks out, or is it just kind of like historic, you know, just tradition, just this is the way it's always been done? I think Alabama used to be quite easy also. Mm -hmm. It went bad in 1995 mm -hmm. because in 1994, the, the Reform Party had a candidate for county commission, and he was a, quote, sore loser. He had mm -hmm. run in the Democratic primary for the same office, mm -hmm. and he lost. So there was no law against the, the Reform Party nominating him. Mm-hmm for the same thing in the general election and they did and he won. <laughs> yeah. That made people so mad in the legislature, that's when they put in this terrible 3% petition. Now they could have just outlawed sore losers. Mm -hmm. That was what was bothering them, but they went way overboard. And ironically, it was the democratic majority legislature back in 1995. So you can't blame the Republicans for that. But yeah. the Republicans have been in power in a long time in Alabama, and they won't change it.
Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess like if I'm, again, if I'm listening to this and I want to take action, like what are some things you'd recommend folks listening to this do if they want to, you know, change the ballot access laws in their, in their state? Well, this is the time when legislators are starting to decide which bills they're going to introduce. Mm -hmm. And in almost every state, legislators are controlled. They can only introduce so many bills. Mm -hmm. So if people are in a state and they perceive the ballot access laws are faulty and they want to do something about it, the best thing is to um, contact your state legislator very soon and talk to them about it. And if if you want data to help bolster your case, well, please get in touch with me. I think it's pretty easy to find me thanks to the internet now. Richard Winger, Ballot Access News. Yeah, you're a very easy person to get in touch with, so I can attest to that. And um, and yeah, and and again, Ballot Access News, ballot-access.org uh, is where you can get just a ton of information on what's going on. Um, I've got one last question for you, um, which is, you know, you've been looking at this for, for decades. Have things gotten better or, or worse? In the last 40 years, they've gotten better mm-hmm. because... Minor parties have been working really, really hard, lobbying and filing lawsuits. Mm -hmm. You never can tell which lawsuit's going to win. You can never tell which bill is going to pass. So you just try, 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 and some of them succeed. Mm -hmm. The the biggest indicator that things are better is the vote test for a party to stay in the ballot. In 1976, the median state required a party to pull 5% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Now it's 2%. That's mm-hmm. a huge improvement. Mm-hmm. So um, people shouldn't be discouraged. People should realize that effort pays off. So, first and foremost, the most interesting reform to ballot access Richard proposed was a 5,000 signature threshold for getting on the ballot. It seems like a fairly reasonable number for any legitimate candidate to hit, and it would also keep the ballot from being too crowded, as Richard cited in California's 2000 gubernatorial recall that had about 800 candidates. Second, and possibly most interesting point, is how media access dictates our voting decisions. And you know, countries like the UK and Canada do have first-past-the-post voting systems like ours, yet they have a thriving multi-party system. And a lot of that is due to the fact that media outlets are required to give equal access to any candidate on the ballot, not just the two major ones. And, you know, this isn't the first episode where media access has been brought up. And so I think this is a subject I'm going to have to dive into next year. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episodes, a video version of my conversation with Richard can be found on You Don't Have to Yell's Facebook and YouTube page. And I'm going to be releasing more in the future ahead of the podcast schedule. Uh, So be sure to check those out as well and subscribe to us on either Facebook or YouTube to get alerts and updates on that and other stuff I may wish to post. As always, theme music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino, Jason Putney, 
Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.